does it mean to be a heretic? Why is dissent from the dominant orthodoxies of our age so important? It's a topic my guest on today's program has thought a lot about as a progressive who questions the thinking on his side of the aisle. And he says, in fact, we owe much of human progress to the heretics throughout history who have dared to dissent. Brendan O'Neill is the chief political writer for Spiked and the host of The Brendan O'Neill Show. His new book is A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. Brendan O'Neill is my guest today on Lean Out. Brendan, welcome to Lean Out. My pleasure to be here. It's very nice to have you on. I found this book incredibly interesting, and uh, it's great to get a chance to speak about it today. You write, let's start with the concept of the heretic. You write, an essential task of the heretic is to bristle at orthodoxy, to be suspicious of consensus. Why is heresy so important? Why is it so crucial that we question the orthodoxies of our age? I think it's important to question the orthodoxies of any age, really. And I think there are two reasons I wanted to write this book. The first is to remind people that how important heresy was throughout history. And just to remind people that pretty much every right and every comfort and every piece of knowledge we enjoy today is the gift of a heretic. It it descends from someone who dared to put his or her head above the parapet and say the unsayable. And it's through that process that orthodoxies are challenged and new ideas emerge, sometimes better ideas. So heresy has been wonderful for progress, social progress, political progress. And then I think it's important to have heresy today because I think we live in very conformist times. We live in an era of cancel culture where it's quite difficult for people to express themselves freely, where people risk being no platformed or disinvited or blacklisted in some fashion for holding opinions that would have been perfectly normal 15 or 20 years ago. So in that kind of climate, I think it's especially important for people to raise their voices and say what you're not supposed to say. Mm. And I'm glad you brought up cancel culture, um, because in this age, we, we're we not in danger of being burned at the stake. We're not in danger, in most cases, of being imprisoned, but we are in danger of social ostracism, of, of losing our livelihoods. Um, and in that note, on that note, you, you point out that cancel culture might not be the best phrase for what's going on right now, that it is actually not strong enough to capture this phenomenon. Why not? Yeah, so in the intro- in the very introduction to the book, I make the point that um, I use the term cancel culture all the time. It's very convenient. People know what it means. Uh, so I don't want to be sniffy or snobby about it and, and make out like I never use that term. But I do make the point that I think it's not sufficient to describe what we're currently living through. It sounds too quaint to me, cancel culture. It It brings to mind occasional cancellations you know we can all think of instances of cancellation that have taken place and usually we disapprove of them we say you know let that person speak but i think what we're facing today is far graver than that i think we are living through a reversal of the enlightenment itself and an attack on reason and an attack on freedom of speech and i think it goes much further than cancel culture so one of the points i make is that 
cancel culture's grimmest achievement is not to claim the scalp of a famous person every now and then who makes an off-color joke or says something un-PC, but it's its trickle-down effect, the, the chilling impact it has across society, the message it sends to everyone, including mere mortals who are not rich like J.K. Rowling or not famous like Dave Chappelle, the message it sends to them which is that if even these famous esteemed people can be dragged over the coals for saying something they're not supposed to say, just imagine what could happen to you. Imagine the the, the chaos that could be caused in your workplace, in your life, in your ability to go about your business if you dare to say the things that they say. So it has this chilling impact across society. And I think it's indicative of an anti-enlightened culture that has forgotten about the gains of modernity like tolerance and freedom of conscience and freedom of speech and instead prefers to shut down difficult discussions. So yes, what we're living through is rather bigger than than can be encapsulated in a term like cancel culture. Mm. And we'll we'll come back to the enlightenment later, but I, I want to start today with the climate apocalypse chapter in your book. So I, I found that a really interesting read. I was an environmentalist as a teenager. You know, I come from the left. You you come from the left, too, as mm-hmm. far as I know. Mm-hmm. Um, and one can be concerned about climate change, as I am, very concerned, but also see that there's a certain climate hysteria that has come over this conversation, a kind of religious hysteria, which should be troubling for journalists. Any Anytime you hear the phrase, the science is settled, that should ring alarm bells for journalists, for those of us tasked with questioning everything. Um, from your perspective, I'm really interested to hear what might a more rational approach to the climate change conversation look like? That's a really good question. Yeah, the point I make in that chapter, that's chapter two, where I talk about, I basically compare the climate change hysteria of today with the witch hunts of the pre-modern era, the medieval era, because I think one thing that lots of people might not necessarily be aware of is that lots of those witches who were were burnt at the stake, they were often accused of climate change. They were accused of having interfered with the weather and brought about cold weather in particular and, and caused the failure of crops. And they were basically held responsible for being climate criminals. And if that sounds familiar to us now, it's that's not surprising because we hear those terms today. People are called climate criminals. They're, they're damned for um, interfering with nature, for causing weather of mass destruction, as we call it now. So I kind of draw a line between the climate witch hunts of the medieval era and the climate witch hunting that I think we're living through today. I think in terms of a more rational response, I think the starting point has to be to defend our ability to talk about it rationally. So another point I make in the book is that I'm very interested in the way in which language is manipulated to manipulate thought. And this is a point George Orwell made very often that people who control language are often really looking to control how we think. And I think that's very clear on the climate change issue, the, the way in which the language around it changes all the time. So you very rarely hear people talk about climate change now. It's usually climate emergency. That's the phrase that is used in the Guardian newspaper, for example, now as part of their house style. I think it's been adopted by the New York Times. There's certainly pressure on the New York Times to adopt that phrase. And if you, and then other people use climate apocalypse. And of course, the the reason this changing language is important is because it's very difficult to argue in relation to a climate apocalypse that we can be rational and and we can solve this problem. Because an apocalypse, of course, is the end of the world. It's the end of everything. 
you can't really put forward a, a, a manufacturing or technological solution to an apocalypse. So the changing language shrinks how we're able to think about this issue and the solutions we're able to put forward. So the first step has to be to demand rational discussion of how serious the problem is and what kind of solutions we can come up with. And then I think the my preferred approach is to have an approach to world affairs which emphasizes the importance of alleviating poverty first. Let's not forget 3 billion people still live in dire poverty. Um, growth, uh, the development of energy, the development of industry and infrastructure, I think those are the most important things. And once we've achieved some of that, we can talk about how to offset the consequences of those things and in a rational way. What technological means can we use to offset our impact on, on the climate? That's my preferred approach to this, this issue. Mm. And it, it, going from the climate change conversation to the COVID conversation, which is really a natural progression in this idea that humanity is kind of a plague on the planet, mm. your COVID chapter was so interesting. And you write... From the start, COVID-19 was both a physical threat and a metaphor, both a real disease and a symbol, both a serious sickness and an allegory for what the elites view as the sickness of human society, in particular, the sickness of unrestrained social engagement, of unchecked speech, of human noise. And you also write that this the COVID phenomenon became a kind of parable of human toxicity. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, so that chapter is heavily influenced by Susan Sontag. Um, some of your listeners will be familiar with Susan Sontag, and especially her most famous work, or one of her most famous works, which was called Illness as Metaphor, which was published in the 1970s. And she basically takes a historical look at the different ways in which sicknesses have been turned into metaphors for human society itself. So uh, plagues were often seen as an expression of God's divine displeasure with humankind. Everyone knows that example. Or sexually transmitted diseases were often treated as punishment for um, immoral behavior, sinful behavior. So I kind of take her thesis and apply it to COVID. So that chapter is called COVID as, as metaphor. And, and what I argue in that is that we often see lockdown, for example, as a natural policy response to this pandemic. But I not I'm not convinced that it was. I mean, I'm convinced that we may have needed restrictions of one form or another. I would have preferred them to be voluntaristic restrictions rather than enforced by law. But the point I make is that I think lockdown was actually an expression of an idea that existed before COVID, which is that human be human beings are pretty toxic people. We, you know, this is the era of the safe space, for example, where we're often hiding away from difficult ideas or problematic people. This is the era of uh, extreme atomization where we kind of cut ourselves off from other people. And the language of disease has been flowing through public life for years, long before COVID. You know, we talk about ideas being viral. We talk about parents being toxic. We talk about um, the disease of, of uh, problematic thinking and, and the impact it can have on the body and self-esteem. So I think all of these things have contributed to a view of people as a plague, firstly on the planet through the impact that we apparently have on the climate, but also a plague on each other. We're a threat to each other. And I find that a very depressing, illiberal, anti-solidarity idea. And as someone like you who comes from the left, I'm very interested in solidarity, how people can connect, how people can work out what they have in common rather than what distinguishes them from each other. 
And so I, I argue that COVID really brought to a head all of those pre-existing prejudices about human beings, how we behave, how we think, and how we need to be controlled. So I argue that essentially lockdown was a depressing victory for an anti-human idea. And I would prefer that we erred on the side of freedom and choice and encouraging people to take responsibility for themselves rather than treating us all as vectors of disease who have to be quarantined from each other. Mm. And it was so interesting. You pointed out that idea of silence during the pandemic, that mm. we all just need to shut up and stop talking and mm. and that, you know, the a lack of any kind of speech can help solve the problem of the virus is now kind of transmutated into this idea of this of avalanche of misinformation and that now that, that that speech needs to be shut down online as opposed to in person. Can you can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so I I was really interested. I I, I first noticed this during the first wave itself in in uh, mid 2020 where there were lots of reports saying look, stop talking. But that's basically what they said, stop talking to your neighbors, stop talking to people you see in the supermarket. Um, because every time you talk, you're expressing, you're potentially expressing a, a diseased particle. So there were lots of articles around saying, look, the way to solve this pandemic is by shutting up, just be quiet. And then there were other examples like experts, even when things opened up, experts said, don't speak in restaurants, sit there in silence with your friends because you might spread disease, which is such a bizarre suggestion. And then um, Salisbury Cathedral here in the UK they did these tests on him singing. So they tested how far the singer's spittle was flying when they were singing hymns to God. And if it flew over a certain distance, then they would ban him singing entirely. So I thought to myself, even in a church, you cannot even sing to the Lord. You cannot even express yourself in that way. Even there, they were demanding silence. So I think that, again, was a metaphor for the desire to just make people be quiet and to stop exercising our freedom to speak so often. And then it got expressed in the culture around COVID, where very often anyone who criticised lockdown or mask mandates or other policies, they were instantly denounced as granny killers, people who were dangerous and reckless, and they were using their voice in a very uh, problematic way. And then the thing that really topped it off for me is that it wasn't even speech that was done face to face that they treated problemat as problematic, but even speech that took place online. And of course, you can't spread a disease online. That's not possible. But even there, they talked about the plague of misinformation and the disease of misinformation. So you had this situation where if you went outdoors and spoke to your neighbor, you might get sick. If you went online and spoke to a stranger 3,000 miles away, you might get sick. The whole idea they were pushing is that it wasn't only COVID that was a threat, but so was speech, uncontrolled speech, people's ideas. So it all got wrapped up, I think, in that crusade to try to control how people think and how they speak. And, and that's very often these days wrapped up in the idea of misinformation and the idea that they have to control misinformation in case it spreads too far and wide. Mm. And in this book, I mean, you tackle so many difficult subjects. Um, and one of those difficult subjects is in the chapter, The Love That Dare Not Speak Its Name, you explore the rise of, of homophobia on the left, um, particularly through this idea that gay men or lesbian women have a quote unquote genital fetish if they would prefer not to sleep with trans people, if they're solely attracted to those who are biologically the same sex. And you write that we are witnessing 
Um, the repathologization of homosexuality. How did we get to a point um, where even leading charities, LGBTQ charities, struggle to say that it is okay to be same-sex attracted? This is something I'm hearing from uh, gay people a lot about right now. Yeah, it's such an interesting story. And it, it really comes down to some of the excesses of transgenderism, I think. So there's a couple of chapters in my book, the first chapter, and then also this chapter, The Love That Dare Not Speak Its Name, which really tackle uh, the gender ideology, the new gender ideologies, which I do see as being a very good example of anti-enlightened thinking and um, illiberal thinking. And I think what's happened in relation to gay rights is really quite extraordinary, which is we have a situation now where we have the rise of neo-homophobia, woke homophobia, because what um, gender ideology does, it emphasizes the subjective idea of gender. So you can be whatever you want to be. You can be male, you can be female, you can be non-binary, you can pick your gender. It emphasizes that subjective idea over the biological reality of sex. Um, so you have a situation now where anyone who thinks the biological reality of sex is important can be written off as a bigot, someone who is ignoring the importance of, of, of gender choice. And that has led to a situation where um, gay men and lesbian women are being demonized as bigots because they refuse to sleep with someone of the opposite sex. So there are lesbians, for example, who the BBC did a good report on this a couple of years ago. There are young lesbians in particular who are under pressure to sleep with biological males who identify as lesbians. And if they don't, they are denounced as genital fetishists. Why are you so obsessed with vaginas? Why won't you sleep with this woman just because she, in inverted commas, has a penis? And what it does, I think that's a very good example of how it rehabilitates an old homophobic prejudice. So I'm old enough to remember in the 1980s, for example, when there was a, a very bigoted idea, which is that the problem with lesbians is that they just hadn't had a good shag, right? They'd never had, they'd never been um, had proper sex with a man. That's why they were lesbians. All they needed was a, a good bit of sex with a bloke, and that would put them on the straight and narrow. I mean, that was the argument, the bigoted argument some people made. Now that argument has been rehabilitated in the supposedly politically correct idea of transgenderism. It's the exact same argument. You should sleep with this biological male. You shouldn't be afraid of um, having a penis in your bed with you. And if you are uh, concerned about those things, you're a genital fetishist. You're a weirdo. You're a bigot. There's something wrong with you. So it seems very clear to me that old prejudices about gay people are being rehabilitated on the back of the trans ideology. And so I, it, it, I use it in my book as an example of how important it is to think critically, because very often these new ideas can kind of wash over society without us really noticing, without us really stopping to think, um, what does this idea of choosing your sex really mean? What will its impact be on women's rights, on uh, women-only spaces, on gay rights, on how we perceive of same-sex attraction, if it's replaced by same-gender attraction, what will the consequences be? So that's a very good instance, I think, where it's so important that we continually question orthodoxies as they are emerging before their impact becomes too problematic. And I think uh, in relation to the gender ideology and gay rights, we can see that there's a big clash there. Mm. 
And I I struggle with this conversation for for a couple of reasons. I mean, on the one hand, I mean, I I, I think the vast majority of trans people are not trans activists. They're just going about their lives. I want them to be able to live in dignity and respect with full rights. And I worry about the sort of panic over transgenderism and, and how that impacts regular people just going about their lives. So I worry about that. I also worry about this flood of homophobia now coming from the right, like old school homophobia. Um, I'm seeing some of the most nakedly homophobic rhetoric I've seen in my lifetime. And I'm concerned about the rollback of gay rights, gay marriage in particular. How do we evaluate um, the trans activist movement and look at some of its potential downsides without feeding into ugly stereotypes of sexual predators and groomers and et cetera. That's such an important question. And I really agree that the vast majority of trans people are just normal people who want to get on with their lives free from discrimination, free from oppression, and they should have every right to do that. I think what's happened uh, beyond those people who are the majority, I think there is now a noisy trans lobby, which has a lot of favor amongst sections of the political establishment, sections of the media establishment, who often demonstrate their virtue through embracing the most extreme ideas of the trans idea. So I, I put the blame far more on those kind of elite sections of society, far more than I do on ordinary trans people who are just uh, you know, normal citizens like the rest of us. Um, so that's an important point. But I think in relation to uh, the return of right-wing homophobia as well, I really agree. I think there's a pincer movement at the moment. This is the thing that really worries me, where on one side you have a kind of a, the emergence of a woke homophobia or a neo-homophobia, which is leading really clearly to young lesbians and young gay men in particular being attacked online, some of them even subjecting themselves to um, medical intervention because they think they're, if if you're a young woman who's attracted to other women, you must really be a man. So lots of problematic things are happening from that kind of woke side. But from, from the right wing side, we now have this pushback against some of the great gains of the 1960s onwards, uh, gay rights, gay liberation, even uh, women's rights and the women's liberation movement. And some right-wingers are responding to the trans issue by saying, um, you know, well, we have to maintain a very clear distinction between the sexes, which is that men go out and do the work and women should be at home nurturing children. So the thing that worries me, people, if you, if you say you're anti-woke, or you're worried about political correctness, people will often assume you're a fusty old white man who wants to turn the clock back to the 1950s. For me, it's the exact opposite. The reason I'm worried about these things is because I think they're undermining some of the wonderful things that have happened since the 1960s. I think they're undermining the idea of racial equality through rehabilitating the racial gaze and the idea that we should judge uh, everyone by whether they're white and privileged or black and in pain. I think it's undermining women's liberation through invading women-only spaces and uh, eviscerating even the language of womanhood. So you can't really say woman or mother in the way that you could a few years ago. And I think it's undermining gay rights and lesbian rights as well in the way that we've talked about. So for me, the reason I'm worried about these things is precisely because I consider myself a progressive and because I think some of those journeys that society has been on over the past 50 or 60 years have been incredibly positive. So that's why I think it's important to stand up against both the woke assault on our rights and also the right wing assault on our rights. Mm. 
And I'm glad you brought up racial politics um, because you have a, a chapter on that in the book. I've al- I've also been quite critical of the new ascendant anti-racist movement, w- which I do see as uh, as regressive. Um, you have a chapter on white shame and you write where past revolts were expressions of frustrations at the slow pace of structural change in housing, the labor market, civil rights legislation. The Floyd fallout concerned itself with therapeutic change, primarily with mending the disease psychology of whites. Um, talk to me a little bit about that, about that and how it plays into this ascendant anti-racism movement. Yeah, I think the response to the killing of George Floyd was just extraordinary. I mean, on the surface of it, it looked like the riots of the past. You know, it looked like the race riots that we've seen in the US in particular at different times in the 20th century. But I think, in in fact, it was very different because where those riots and also uh, the protests that took place, the very civil protests that took place, they were about demanding racial equality. In the case of the civil rights movement of the 1960s, it was explicitly about calling for an end to racial thinking. You know, famously, let's judge people by character rather than color. I think the Black Lives Matter movement, rather than being the heir to the, that movement, was actually threatens to usurp it and to replace the kind of post-race uh, idea of Martin Luther King or the colorblind idea that uh, liberals believed was very important for a long time, it threatens to replace that with identity politics, which to my mind is the very opposite of, of, of true anti-racism because it rehabilitates the racial imagination. It encourages us all to self-flagellate for our whiteness or to believe that we're victims if we happen to be black or or Asian or or some other ethnic minority group. Um, So it it encourages a kind of ossification of the races and a division between the races. And I find that really problematic. And the point I make in the chapter on white shame is that I think anti-whiteness can look progressive right you know whites are the majority community in certainly in in our societies um we have had more power than other communities in the past so it looks progressive to bash whites but the point i make is that actually it's incredibly regressive and it overlooks important issues like class the fact that not all white people are privileged many many white people the majority in fact uh, often struggle to make ends meet or have to work very hard to make ends meet. So it, it, I don't like the way in which racial politics undermines class politics. But more importantly, I think white shame, which has been institutionalized in some Anglo-American societies, is really a way for the establishment to distance itself from its own past, to distance itself from the history of the countries we live in, the traditions of the countries we live in. We're now just seen as countries that were born in racism, born from the sin of imperialism. We should self-flagellate forever for our crimes of history. It gives rise to a very depressing culture, which is about beating us up, beating ourselves up for what we did in the past, rather than thinking about what we might do in the future. So white shame, I think, is a is a very backward ideology that presents itself as a politically forward looking ideology. Mm. I'm glad you bring up class hatred, too, because I, I see this very clearly happening in Canada. And you argue that this kind of scorn of the unwashed masses, um, you refer to that as gammons in, in the UK lingo, is at heart about a profoundly anti-democratic instinct among the elites. Can you give us just a very brief history of the use of these pig-based slurs and why you find it so interesting that these are surfacing again now? 
Yeah, I'm fascinated. In in the UK, we refer well, not we, but the 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 kind of middle class elites, the establishment refers to certain voters as gammon. So that means it really refers to lower class men of a certain age in particular who have red faces and they're always angry. So that's why they're called gammon. They vote for Brexit. They're critical of mass immigration. Um, so they're referred to gammon because of their red skin. And I just always found this interesting because if you look back to the time of the French Revolution, uh, when Edmund Burke uh, wrote his very conservative critique of the French Revolution. He referred to the swinish multitude. Uh, he referred to the swines who were rising up against the noblemen and who were threatening to destroy society, in his view. And so a lot of the British radicals uh, at that time who, who thought the French Revolution was a positive thing, um, they were often referred to as swines, as pigs. Um, so they launched all these radical magazines, which played off the idea that they were pigs so there was a magazine called pigs meat there was a magazine called hogs wash so i was just really struck at the fact that 250 years ago um working class radicals who were demanding the right to vote and demanding greater economic equality were referred to as swines and pigs and hogs and you fast forward to the 2020s and working class voters are once again being referred to as gammon which of course is pig meat it's 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 um a pig carcass so I just find the connections between these incredibly dehumanizing phrases very interesting. And I think they, in both eras, it springs from a real allergy to democratic rights, to the right of ordinary people to decide the fate of the country they live in, because they're pigs, they're not intelligent enough, they're stupid, they're, they can't think as well as us experts from the upper classes. That's the idea that's being put forward. And, and that's why they were particularly against Brexit, because Brexit was so clearly a challenge to the rule of the experts. And it basically was people saying, we can run society just as well as you can. So, um, yes, I think uh, a lot of the contempt today for working class people, the classist politics of the of the woke elites really expresses their fear of democracy and their fear of ordinary people making decisions about society. Mm. And just to close, I want to come back to the Enlightenment now. And I, I heard you say in a podcast interview that the Enlightenment was the liberation of inner life. And in in the height of the moral panic in 2020, I, I really felt that I had lost that, the right to an inner life. And it, and it terrified me. So when you argue in this book that we are living through a grave assault on Enlightenment values, it does, it does resonate. I do think there's a bit of a tension here, though. Like, I wonder, the problem of framing this as an ex existential threat, as this kind of epic battle for the soul of our civilization, I worry sometimes that that kind of framing could sanction yet another state of exception where any and all norms can be thrown out, that this is no longer just regular politics. Um, so how is a crusade against an existential threat in the anti-woke camp any different from the crusade against an existential threat on the far right or the far left? Good question. I think you're right to 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 say that it's important that we don't I don't want to say exaggerate because I do think we're living through a, a crisis-ridden era, but it's important that we don't um, use apocalyptic language, you know, end times. Uh, if we don't win this battle, we're all doomed forever. I, I, I think we should definitely not go down that road. There's enough apocalypticism in society as it is with, you know, Just Stop Oil and Extinction Rebellion and all these groups telling us the world is coming to an end. So we should definitely steer clear of that. But at the same time, I do think we have to... I think it's important to appreciate how serious the battles are. And the way I think about it is, 
if you're not even free to say that someone with a penis is not a woman, then you're in big trouble. Now, this is to go back to your earlier point. This is not about this doesn't mean wandering up to a trans person in the street and insulting them to their face. No one wants to do that apart from some crazy lunatics who are genuine bigots. But it is about defending uh, the expression of reasoned scientific ideas in society itself. And I think that's how serious the problems we face now are, where expressing ideas that were seen as perfectly normal and good and reasoned for hundreds of years can now land you in hot water. So something bad is happening in society. And the point I make about inner life is that I think one of the interesting things for me about political correctness or whatever we're supposed to call it, it's actually not just about influence in how we speak it's not just about making sure we use the correct language it's about making sure we have the correct thought it's about making sure that we think in what they consider to be the right way and so one of the themes of my book is precisely the the way in which language is manipulated in all sorts of issues climate change sex and gender the question of islam the question of race lots of controversial heated topics what you'll find is that language is constantly being changed as a way of making us think in the way that they would rather that we think. And that's what I think is the key part of the, the assault on the inner life. Because if we're not free to determine for ourselves what we think is true, what we think is right, what we think we should be able to say in public life, then we're not free at all. And, and, and the great insight of the early Enlightenment thinkers, in particular John Locke, in his letter on toleration published in the 1600s, he said that no one should ever be pressured by fire or sword to think in a certain way. And I think we are being pressured to do that now, not necessarily by fire or sword, but by the threat of ostracism, by the threat of being blacklisted, by the threat of losing our job. So I don't like those new external pressures to make us change how we think. And I think a defense of the free individual to decide for him or herself what is the best way to approach their life, that's very important. Well, it is a hugely interesting and thought-provoking book, and uh, I really appreciate the conversation today. Thank you. Thanks, Tara. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.